You know, uh, so we're, we're continuing in a, in a series we've been going through for about almost four months through the, the book of, the letter of 1 John, uh, it's a letter that, that John wrote to the church in general just to, to give the, 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 the church uh, emboldened confidence about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how we're supposed to live in this world. Uh, so we're continuing on. We'll be in here this week and then next week, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. You know, every once in a while, uh, as a parent, you have these moments where uh, God just seems to show up in the midst of your parenting, and if you're not ready, you can totally miss what the Lord's doing in the middle of it. You can be so consumed with your own agenda and your, your own process that you can miss like a divine intervention that the Lord is having in your midst. Uh, that, that happen, that's happened a few times for me over the summer. Uh, some of them I've caught, I think some of them I've missed. Uh, but our, our youngest child, uh, our youngest daughter, uh, has, has, has had uh, a lot of fear about death. And we think that it kind of came up surrounding, you know, the coronavirus. Uh, and then also an aging great-grandparent that, uh, that's just not doing too well. And so these, these moments come up, and all of a sudden it just hit her about a month ago. You know, I'm going to die one day. And it began to, to terrify her and to torment her. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that she got so scared because she's the kid that the, the first day of preschool two years ago, she walks into the preschool class like without mom or anything. There's a kid crying because he, he misses his mom and she takes her thumb out of her mouth and says, hey, Kenny, stop crying. You know, I mean, like this is that kid. And so it's this moment where this tender moment where we're sitting there talking about how Jesus gives us security through eternal life. Where, where death is not the end of us. And, you know, we just reassuring her that, that Jesus can deliver us from the fear of death. And, and a lot of times, this is where, this is how people speak about eternal life. They speak about eternal life in the sense that we will be rescued from hell, we'll be rescued from death. Most Christians spend their lives waiting for eternal life. Waiting for heaven. If I can just hang on, I'll have eternal life. But our passage of Scripture today tells us a better story about our future. Listen to just a couple verses from it, from 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what John says here. He says this, And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. And who, whoever has the son, possessive, whoever has the son now, who has the son through faith, has life. And whoever does not have the son does not have life. And my question to us as we dig in this morning is what if we really believed what John wrote? That, that we actually have life now? That life is not just something in the future, but life starts when you possess Jesus through faith. That's what John wants us to live with, that, that, that reality. Most of us know what God has saved us from, but few of us know what God has saved us for on this earth. He saved us for abundant life today. So how does this become more embedded in our DNA spiritually? How can we become more fully united to Christ this day and not just on that day when judgment comes. This is what John wants to address today. And here's our big idea of where we're headed today. It's this. God's mission towards us 
empowers our mission to the world. Let me say it one more time. God's mission toward us empowers our mission to the world. So let's dig in. Just two points. God's mission to us, three witnesses of full life in Christ. So here's the scene. I want you to imagine maybe the the best, like, movie or series that you've seen that has, like, it's like a courtroom kind of drama. You know what I mean? Uh, um, So this is kind of the scene that John draws up. you you got to remember, John is closing out his letter. He's been making a case for, for Jesus as God that gives us confidence as Christians. And it, he kind of draws up the case as like a courtroom. And this is the closing defense that he's about to make. And the case is all about the most important question in the world. Who is Jesus? And once you answer who is Jesus, now what do we do about that? Is what John has been addressing. John says, whoever has a son who has life, which means this, that Jesus is the God-man. He's not just a good man. He is the God-man. And because when you answer this question truthfully, what happens is that everyone on the face of the planet, because all of our knees are going to bow and we're all going to be confronted with the person and work of Jesus, we have to have a response to that. There is no option to hit eject on the question. There is no option to just say, yeah, I'm not really interested with that. Because we're all going to be confronted by it. And the question is, are we going to be confronted by it on our terms or on his terms? That's the question. So this is what John is addressing here. So on one side, you've got the plaintiff. The plaintiff is saying this, and he's already given his his kind of reasoning here. He says, Jesus is a good man. He's a good teacher. He did good. We should take his good deeds and the things that he brought into the world and consider them, just like we would the works of Aristotle, Plato, or, or Socrates. There's some good stuff there. We need to listen to that. You know, essentially... And and John was specifically dealing with the issue of Gnosticism, right? We talked about that early on. So specifically saying that, like, there is no life apart from Jesus. And so so the plaintiff is saying, no, there is life apart from Jesus. There is. It's it's a good life. You can kind of do the church thing, get a little Jesus, and then get on with your life. And John is saying, that's not how Christians live. There is no separation. Your testimony is in Jesus, and Jesus is in you. So, so just imagine that the plaintiff has already called his witnesses, he's already kind of finished his discourse, and now John steps up as the defending attorney, and, and guess what? You are the jury. Now, some of you have been on jury duty before. Most of you find a way to weasel yourself out of it somehow, don't you? You're like, yeah, I got this, I got that, I'm not feeling well, this and that. But, but you're, you're on, you, you are part of the jury today. No matter who you are, wherever you are hearing this, you are part of the jury and you've got to make a decision on who Jesus is. So the, the defense is, is saying this, that Jesus is not just a good man, he's the God man. And, and, and John is the attorney that's representing the defense to us, so we're going to pick up in what John has to say. Here's what he says. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. This is who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and by the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And guess what? These three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So do you hear it as a legal setup here? 
Because what happens in a legal scenario is you bring in multiple witnesses to prove your case, don't you? And if, if, the, uh, if, the, if the stories don't line up, you're like, well, this is not true. Who do we believe? John is saying these three agree, these three, these three that testify, God's testimony to the validity of who his son is, they all agree, the water and the blood and the spirit. So John is making his case, and my hope is, is that he makes the case that the case may be more fully solidified in your own heart. But, but the, the mystifying part of this text is, is what does the water and the blood mean? There's been a lot of people that have said different things about what the water and the blood mean. So I think we have about four options on what the water and the blood can mean. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because then we'd, we'd miss the meat for today. But the first option is we could say that the water and the blood represent the sacraments of, of baptism in the Lord's table. Uh, and, and so th- that would be an option. Uh, the second one would be the crucifixion. So you remember the scene when, when Jesus is on the cross, there's a Roman executioner that's sent to spear Jesus in the side, and what flows from his side? Water and blood. That's what this text says. The, se- the third thing that you could say uh, is, is mean- this is meaning is, is Jesus' actual physical birth. Because if you, if you know anything about childbirth, um, you know, when a baby is born, it is water and blood, right? That's, that's how the, the child is, is born. Um, I think those are all, uh, th- those could be the answer, but I think the best interpretation, and, and every uh, expositor and every Christian that reads the Bible, you have to make, you have to make decisions on, on things like this, right? I think that this is talking about Jesus' baptism and Jesus' crucifixion. So kind of a combination of a couple of those. And the reason why I think that is because this text is talking about Jesus' mission to the world. If you look in verse 6, it says this, this is he who came by water and came by blood. He's he's talking about the security of what Jesus has done and what that gives to us. So I think the best way to interpret that is to to talk about Jesus' baptism, which inaugurated his mission to the world, and Jesus' crucifixion, which finished his work. For Christians in the world. So with that in mind, uh, the star witness is on the stand, uh, God himself, and, and he's saying that there's three that testify, the, the water, the blood, and the spirit. So let's dig in to the water. As I said, I'm, I'm interpreting this as Jesus's baptism here. The first thing that we should notice is this, is that the water and the blood um, that, that, that John is mentioning here testify to the legitimacy of our hope in Christ, and they are directly related to how Jesus' work in the world accomplished our hope in Christ. So he came by water and blood, not by water only. So he didn't, just, he didn't just start the mission of God in the world to rescue sinners and then leave us into some kind of spiritual orbit of good works to figure it out ourselves, but he finished it. He didn't just come to start the possibility of life eternal, but he came to secure the, the, the finality and the security of life eternal, the water and the blood, is what John is saying here. So the water, what does water represent in the scriptures when it comes to baptism? I think this will help us understand the mission of Jesus and also more fully understand what we do when we follow Jesus in his example of baptism, in his command of baptism. So we're gonna, you're going to flip back your Bible to Genesis. Genesis, really starting Genesis chapter 1, the, the first mention of water in the Bible. Do you know when it is? It's on the second day of creation where, 
God separates the waters from the heavens on the, and the earth. And, and the third day, God gathers the water so that dry land can appear. Well, then you know the story in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man and sin's entrance, sin's dominating entrance into the world devastates all of humanity. And it doesn't take long for us to see that in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Then you go to Genesis chapter 6, and I want to read a verse to you that's terrifying to me. And it's this right here, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, and he saw that it was great in the earth. And that, listen to the the clarity of this, there's no wiggle room, that every one of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All right, If, if that's not total depravity, I don't know what is. Every one of his thoughts, these image bearers of God that were created in God's image, was only evil continually. So then what happens? Genesis chapter 6 The Lord uh, says that there is this one man who's righteous, he and his family. Noah, there's, I think, eight of them total, right? Three sons and their wives and Noah's wife. And and, uh, they find favor in God's sight, not because they're perfect. We see that pretty clearly uh, just a little bit later. But they found favor in God's sight. God has chosen to set his love on them and to rescue them. How does God rescue them? He says, Noah... You're going to have to build a boat. We don't even know if it's rained before at this time, right? You're going to have to build a boat because there's a flood coming, Noah. And uh, and so Noah does this crazy thing. He builds a big boat. God gives him the blueprint for it. His family gets inside. It's I mean, they think it's, it probably looks a little crazy, right, to everybody else because it's it's dry land and there's a boat on it, and his family is hunkering down with a bunch of animals, right? It looks kind of crazy, but then what begins to happen? The rain comes, 40 days, 40 nights, the flood happens, the boat begins to float. What happens in the world is that God's wrath is poured out on all of humanity except these eight image bearers. So there is a baptism, a cleansing of the earth. And only those who pass through by grace because of God's love, because he set his love on them, are found in the ark to survive. If that's not clear enough, let's go to Moses. God established a a nation through Abraham's lineage. And from Noah's family, we see that he'll save a remnant of that lineage, Israel, that he'll save. And they're marked with the sign and seal of circumcision that they belong to God because he loves them and set them apart as his holy and beloved people. They're called the Israelites, God's chosen people. But not too long after this, they decide to go their own way, and they find themselves enslaved in none other than Egypt. So God raises up Moses, who's a Hebrew, he's an Israelite, and through a a series of events, he basically becomes adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter, and, uh, and, and God raises him up into leadership. Now, he, he does some things that are sinful. And he ends up fleeing because he murders a guy. God meets him in the wilderness in, I think it's Midian, and he meets him in a burning bush, calls him back to rescue God's people. Uh, and, and, and the way that he rescues God's people is that he, he, the Lord uh, judges Pharaoh uh, and the Egyptians through a series of ten plagues. You've heard of them before. And the last one is the death of the firstborn, of all the Egyptian uh, firstborn children. And and Moses delivers them through what the scriptures call baptism. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. 
It says, for I do not want you to be aware, brothers, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So they're wandering in the wilderness under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Listen to what he calls this passage through the sea right here. They were all baptized into Moses. See, that baptism before Jesus commands us to baptize in the cloud and, the, and in the sea. So what's this mean? While Israel was under slavery, God chose to deliver them and chose, and chose to use Moses to deliver them. And so what happens in Exodus 14 is Pharaoh has had enough. The death of the firstborn, the, the gnats, the flies, and all the other disgusting stuff that happens in the ten plagues. And he says, get out of here. They've been crying, Pharaoh, let my people go. And finally he says, get out. And uh, all about two million of them, two, about, I think it was like 800,000 plus women and children. I, I could be off a little bit. But it's about two million people start to make their way out of Egypt into what God will show them is the promised land. And there's only this problem, though. They've got to cross the Red Sea, one of the biggest bodies of water around. They've got to cross the Red Sea to get over there. There's no suspension bridge to safely pass over. And so the Lord says this in Exodus chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, Moses. So lift it up and part the sea, Moses, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they'll change their mind and they'll go after them into the sea. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. So the story goes like this. All of Israel is baptized or passed safely through on dry ground. And as soon as Moses lifts his hands down, the Egyptians just happen to be on the bottom of the Red Sea. And the sea comes crashing in on top of them and they all drown. Baptism has to do with judgment. And those that are baptized into Christ have safe passage through the waters. Just like Noah, just like the Israelites. If that's not enough, how about the story of Jonah? Jonah tells, God tells Jonah to go and preach repentance to Nineveh. Well, he doesn't like that idea. He doesn't like the Ninevites. They're the worst people imaginable. Be like trying to send a you know, a, 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 a group of people on a mission, you know, to convert you know, ISIS in 2012, you know. I mean, that was the kind of mentality that he had at that point. And what happens is the sail- he tells the sailors to toss him off the boat because the storm's about to kill them all. And when they toss him over, the sea gets calm. And a big fish gobbles Jonah up, and he's in the fish for three days and three nights. It's this safe passage through the waters of judgment, and he passes through by grace in the belly of a fish, and he repents. The waters of baptism, church, are so much more, not less, but so much more than just a sign of obedience that we follow as believers and as children of believers. There's so much more to that than just an example, a little dunking, a little water. They represent God's secure rescue plan through the entire course of humanity to save us from the wrath of God and to give us safe passage through judgment because of God's favor. And this is why Jesus's ministry begins with baptism. 
John chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. Jesus' cousin John, a little older than him. He's a little different, right? Lives out in the wilderness, has a little different diet than Chick-fil-A. And uh, here's, what, here's what the scriptures say about what John the baptizer was doing. He says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he just drops what he's doing. There's a line of people wanting to be baptized, thousands of people. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a little bit different entrance, isn't it? Unless you understand that baptism is about being rescued from judgment. So notice what he says, behold, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He's talking about the eternality of who Jesus is. He said, I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose... I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So I came to remind them about our story, about what I've told you about this morning, about baptism, about water. I came to remind them about that and about how our only hope is to be rescued from God's judgment. So what is it that we baptize ourselves in? What is it that we really Trust in? What is it that we really trust to save us from God's wrath in this world, his judgment against sin? You know, all the ways that we've disgraced his image, that we've marred his image in the world. Because some of us, I think a lot of Christians say, I'm baptized into Jesus, but really they're immersed in something else. Am I right? There's a lot of things that we could be immersed in today, church. And there's only one that will save us. This is, why, this is why life, and I, I could tell you story after story from this week about people, beloved members of this congregation and people in this community who life is not going the way they thought it should. So when you get to the point when you realize that life is not going like you thought it would go, what are you going to immerse yourself in? What are you going to place yourself, what kind of waters are you going to swim in? The scriptures go on to say this in Matthew 3 about Jesus' baptism. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John to be baptized by him. It's another vantage point of Jesus' baptism. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I've got work to do that you don't understand, John. Then he consented, and Jesus was baptized immediately, and he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. People are watching this happen, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven says to him, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." So what is Jesus doing? What's happening when Jesus is baptized? He doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need the baptism of repentance. He's not just saying, hey, let me just set an example for the church 2,000 years ago so they'll know that you know, we're supposed to be baptized. He's not just saying that. There's so much more that's happening here. No, here's what he's doing. He's formally and finally identifying with our need to be rescued from the wrath of God and his plan to accomplish it. What Jesus is saying when he's baptized is this, I identify with them. I identify with you in your sin. 
I identify with you even though you're an adulterer. I identify with you even though you've been stealing your whole life. I identify with you, sinner. That's what Jesus is saying when he's baptized. That his life and his ministry will exist to save those who repent and trust him for life. That's such good news for us because he's demonstrating, he's showing everyone what his ministry is going to be about. And then when you remember his baptism, when you remember the fact that he came for sinners and declared that from the beginning, the gospels make a lot more sense, don't they? This is why he came and he was eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors because that's who he came from. And he said that from the beginning, from the beginning of his ministry, he told them that. So the water... The baptism of Jesus testifies to us, is what John's saying. That we'll be consumed by the wrath of God if we're not found in him. If you are found in him, you're baptized into his body, both spiritually and physically. You're the church. And then you find that Jesus is so much better than Noah's ark, that he's better than walking through dry ground as an Israelite on the bottom of the Red Sea, that he's better than the belly of the fish that Jonah was in. Because he doesn't just point to God, he is God. And all of those things were temporary fixes that pointed to a greater, secure future. And we have it in Jesus. The baptism of Jesus secures the finality of what Jesus came to do, his whole purpose. The water testifies. Jesus' entire life and ministry is aimed at one cause, to seek and to save the lost. That's why when we're baptized, we're baptized into his mission as well. That our entire aim in life comes to seek and save the lost. We, we live wholly for others. That's what the Christian does. We lay down our lives so that other can find, others can find life. Does the water testify to you this morning? Is baptism something that just happened to you when you were seven or you know, six months old and you don't even remember it? Or is it something you've really never taken seriously before? Our baptism it tells a story. On one hand, it speaks to our only security in the life of Jesus. And on the other, it tells the story of how God has washed us, is washing us, and will wash us and purify us forever. It's good news, church. Jesus came to testify to that, to show us what the mission of the Christian life is all about. The second thing that testifies, and y'all are thinking, man, we got two more to go. Uh, the second thing that testifies is the blood. And we've said that the way that we're interpreting this this morning is that the blood is the crucifixion of Jesus. On one hand, you've got the, the water and the baptism of Jesus. And the, the other hand, you've got the crucifixion and the blood. So the bookends of Jesus' ministry, those three years of his life. The blood is about the finality of our deliverance in Jesus. Time will fail me today, but if, you, if you're ever interested in doing a really neat word study in your quiet times over the course of a few months, trace the blood in, in the Bible. Trace blood in the Bible and just see where it leads you. See what kind of scarlet thread it gives you throughout the entire Bible that makes a beeline for Jesus Christ. Do it. I mean, because you'll, you'll see blood all over the place, whether it's from the innocent shedding of blood of Cain and Abel or Abraham and circumcision cutting off the flesh, or about the Passover with Moses where they put blood on the doorpost where the angel of death would pass over the Israelites, to the sacrificial system in the temple that was designed to point us to the permanent sacrifice of Jesus. 
All of these things tell one story. They tell one story that it's, it's going to require sacrifice for us to be secure in God's arms. In the Old Testament, it points toward the fact that everyone on the face of the planet knows that we must be forgiven. You see, today, today I think we trick ourselves into thinking that we don't really need to be forgiven, that we can just live a life uh, of, of no consequence, that we can do whatever we want to do, say whatever we want to do, say whatever we want to say, and that we will ultimately not be held accountable for it. The Bible has no place for that. God has no place for that. In fact, he says we're going to be held accountable for everything. And if you don't believe that, you are living in a fairy tale land. It's not true. We've got to be forgiven. This is why Hebrews 9 says this. Indeed, and Hebrews is all about connecting the Old Testament to Jesus, right? It's, it's beautiful. Hebrews 9 says this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And he gives us this hint about blood. Without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of innocent blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so in our house, the way we like to talk about it, when we ask what, you know, why Jesus had to die for our sins, we, we simply say this, it's either my blood or his. That's really the point of it, right? Either, either I hop up on the altar and, and I'm crucified at the end of time, or, or Jesus has to do it for me. He has to stand in my place as a substitute. And in the Old Testament, you saw that in the sacrificial system. Those animals died so that those sinners didn't have to. Well, Jesus, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So there's no way you're ever going to be forgiven unless Jesus, and, and live unless Jesus stands in your place. In other words, you'll, you'll not be forgiven, and, and you will spend eternity away from God. Ephesians 2.13, listen to this. Listen to the blood here. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off, and that's every single one of us, you are far off, have been brought near by the blood. So the blood of Jesus is like, is like a father that pulls you, pulls you out of the way of a, of a train that's barreling by. Just He pulls you in. The blood of Jesus brings us near to the Father, is what Paul is writing about to this church in Ephesus. He brings us near through the blood, by the blood. As Jesus was on the cross, we see about the finality of the blood here. When Jesus had received the sour wine, this, is, this was just before it was all over, his last words were this, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What's finished? What's finished? You have to answer that question when you read this. What is finished? Here's what I think is finished. Humanity's attempt to try to secure righteousness apart from Jesus' work is finished. And if it's finished, and a perfect man lived and died for the purpose that he told us the whole time that he was going to secure us, and then he actually does it, it's finished. And so we can put down our attempts to try to secure righteousness on our own and just use Jesus as a safety net. It is finished. His blood is the eternal ransom of our souls that secure us forever. And the blood never runs dry because Jesus always lives to make intercession for those that are his. He's seated at the right hand of the Father right now so that the blood can continue to flow for each and every sinner on the face of the planet. And that's why he sent the Spirit, 
to remind us of the water and the blood while he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for the saints. The water and the blood testify means this, that from the start of Jesus' mission on this earth to the finish of it, he had one purpose, to seek and save lost sinners and secure them forever in the Father's good pleasure. That's why he came, church. Amen? The Spirit also testifies, he says. And here's how it works. The Father sends the Son. The Son does the work of the Father and then sends the Spirit when he ascends to the Father. And the Spirit applies the work of the Son with the heart of the Father to sinners that have been rescued. That's how the Trinity works in our redemption. The Spirit serves as a witness to us today because as John 14 says, we're going to be tempted that Jesus has left us as orphans. I think it's John 14, 26. But Jesus tells his disciples, I have not left you as orphans. That's why I'm going to give you the Spirit as a guarantee, as an inheritance, as a promise. I'm going to give the Spirit to you, and the Spirit is constantly going to show you that the water and the blood secure you forever in the Father's righteousness. Listen to John 15, 26 here. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you, Helper is another word for Spirit, from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So what's the Spirit doing? If we have the Spirit today, what's he doing? He is bearing witness about Jesus. He's constantly telling believers, whispering in our ear through the word, who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. Remember, the testimony of the Father agrees, the water and the blood and the Spirit. He's, he's constantly reminding us of that as we avail ourselves to the means of grace. As we hear the preaching of God's word, we read God's word, we pray, we take the sacraments. He's reminding us, he's testifying to our hearts. John 14, 26 puts it like this. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, here's what he's going to do. It's the clearest example of what the Holy Spirit does today. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So imagine hearing that before you've got the canon closed and, and this nice little book that we just leave on a shelf most of the times. Imagining having, imagine having that guarantee that there's not going to be one thing that Jesus came and, and, and didn't accomplish for you that the Spirit will let you forget, that will let you overlook. So this is why in the call to worship today, we said the Spirit is changing us from one degree of glory to another because we're being conformed through this word about Jesus more and more to the image of Jesus every day. God loves you too much to leave you as you are. He loves you way too much to do that. So the Spirit is changing us. I get this question a lot. How do you know when you have the Spirit? How do you know when you have the Spirit? Is it, is it when I start speaking in tongues? You know, if, if, you, if you've come from a Pentecostal kind of background? Is it, is it when I'm able to, to, to really know what my gifts are and really apply those and see a lot of fruit through my ministry? Is it when I lead 15 people to Christ? Is that when I receive the Spirit? So when do you receive the Spirit, church, as witness? When do you receive that? Ephesians chapter 1, 13 is the clearest example of this. Paul's, Paul is kind of starting out the letter, and, and, and he's reminding them of who God is, and he says this, In him, you also, Ephesians, or big C church people, when you heard the word of truth, 
You heard the gospel preached, and you believed in him. So you heard it, and then you responded in faith. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So if you've heard the gospel at New City Church or some other church, and you've responded in faith, maybe faltering faith, but faith that's there, then you have the Holy Spirit. Now, you read in the book of Acts that there are, there are seasons in the life of a believer where God seems to pour out his spirit a little more fully, right? We agree with that. We see that. But the Holy Spirit never leaves the life of the believer. He's constantly doing what? Reminding us of who Jesus is, testifying through the water and the blood, and transforming us into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. So you can say with confidence, if you've heard the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus in your place, and you have believed that that is the only way, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is transforming your life as you spend time in God's Word, as you hear God's Word preached, and as you pursue Jesus. So the testimony is a strong testimony for John as he's presenting his case, right? It's a strong one. So the question is, if that's God's mission toward us, that's his testimony toward us, what's our response? What has God called you and me to do? That's good news. But genuine faith always has a response of obedience, doesn't it? Let's finish the passage out and look at our mission to the world, which is a witness to the reality of knowing Christ right now. Here's what John says, verses 10 through 13. Whoever believes in the Son of God that he's just described and laid out, he actually has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him is a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son does not have life. There is no middle ground here. And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So, so he says this testimony actually lives in each one of us. Now, if you've got a testimony and, and the world puts you on trial about who Jesus is, which is what each and every day as a Christian is, okay? That's what it is. It's a trial. And you've got a testimony, right? And, and if you've got a testimony and you hide that testimony, you commit perjury, Right? How many of us just walk in day in, day out, and we're just committing perjury? We're not testifying to what we know about who God is and his son. So if the testimony of God is alive in us, we have been reconciled because what God testified about is true. So the case that the father makes about his son is eternal. It'll never be overturned. It'll never be like, oh, we found this latest archaeological evidence. Jesus didn't really come. It was all a hoax. You know, it'll never be this situation where we found, oh, yeah, you know, the, the books of the Bible, some dude just wrote those in a cave and they're not real, okay? Because you know what? The scriptures and the testimony of God has agreed for over 2,000 years. It's not going away. And so we have a response to testify. And what we talk about often at New City Church is this. We tend to talk about what we're taken with. Let me say it again. We tend to talk about what we're taken with. 
Are we taken with a new phone? We're going to talk about it. Are we taken with the fact that the NBA finally started up, and it, even though it's a little weird, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're going to talk about that. Are we taken with Jesus? Is he the water that we've immersed ourselves in? Then we are going to speak about him. Make no mistake. This is why the scriptures say you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their testimony. You'll know them by what their life produces. So, Christian, we have a responsibility to testify about the water and the blood and the spirit and what good news that is that agrees for our eternal security and our abundant life here and today. So when I wake up each morning and choose to live out of any other overarching story than the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and his mission toward me and my mission toward the world, I am living out of a false narrative. I'm living out of a lie. And I'm always going to be testifying about those lies unless I agree with the testimony that God has given us in Jesus. You remember what Acts chapter 1 says? This is kind of like, this is kind of like post-Holy Spirit mission, right? I mean, you got the pre-Holy Spirit mission, you know, Great Commission we talk about. But post-Holy Spirit mission, I mean, has anything changed, Jesus? I mean, read Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says this, but you will receive power, dunamis, dynamite in the Greek. You'll receive dynamite power. Not just to get through the hard things in life. Not just to prove to be the strong one. But this power is a very spe- has a very specific application, this power does. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When does the Holy Spirit come upon you? When you hear the gospel and you respond to it. That's when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So if you've heard that, you actually have power. The question is, you've ever experienced the power. Because the power's application is to be a witness to testify to the goodness of Jesus. So a lot of times we think, I don't have power. I don't seem to have this kind of confidence that God's given me. Well, are you testifying about Jesus? Because that's where the power kicks in, right? Why, why should you expect it to kick in anywhere else if you're not testifying about Jesus? The power kicks in when we testify about who Jesus is. And not just where we're comfortable in Jerusalem, but in Judea and, yeah, even Samaria, okay, and to the ends of the world. That's what he's saying here, that that's when you... You experience the power of who God is. So if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I have life. And the Spirit, uh, uh, the, the Spirit gives me power to be a witness, to testify. Now, each, in us, each and every one of us have a nuanced story about how Jesus has rescued us. And that is what we were responsible to make known to the world. But they all have this commonality. That I was dead in my sin and Christ redeemed me. They all have this commonality that, that I tried to get through life on my own and it just didn't work out. They all have this commonality of I'm, I'm absolutely and totally depraved and sinful. Can't get to God on my own, can't please him on my own. But guess what? It doesn't matter. The bad news is where the beginning of the good news happens for believers. And that's the testimony that we make known. Not that we can make this world a better place and make it some type of a utopia where where we can somehow avoid the wrath of God against sinners. That'll never happen. But God is pleased to extend his power as we make Jesus known to the world. I was watching a, a video that I've shared before when we've talked about evangelism. It's... it's um, um, it's by this, this comedian in Las Vegas we used to live in. Um, it's Penn Gillette's the guy's name. And you can look it up on YouTube. But 
He says, uh, he says this really just startling thing. He's an atheist, and he says, um, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about Jesus? And I thought, well, now that you put it like that, I mean, you know, <laughs> okay. But I mean, seriously, what is it that you're waiting for to testify? Is it that you don't have the strength, you don't have the confidence, you might lose friends? Well, you're discounting the power that God is pleased to apply to your life when you're faithful on his mission. He's so pleased to extend his power to you and security as you live with life on him. Because here's the reality, Revelation 12, 11. How do we overcome the evil one, the beast? I mean, you read Revelation, you just see pictures of the enemy all over the place. And this is what John, Jesus' best friend that wrote this letter that we've been in for four months, this is what he wrote. He said, they, the Christians have overcome him, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, remember we talked about the blood, the finished work of Jesus, and the word of their testimony. That's how we overcome church. So no matter where you're at today, I don't know if you're, you're listening to this and, and maybe you've been a lukewarm Christian. It's not too late to repent and to be a sold-out person for Jesus, for his story to be your story. Or maybe um, you're in here and uh, you're listening and, and, uh, and you've, you've never bowed your knee to Jesus. The kingdom of God welcomes you and celebrates that reality. If you want to say, I, I wanna, I've heard the gospel today, I want to respond to that in faith, and I want the Spirit to give me life. If that's you, I would love to talk to you. I don't know how we can make that happen, but email, call, text, show up over here, I don't care. It's more important than anything else in the world. But don't just let another day go by presuming on God's grace that he's not gonna return tomorrow and judge the world. Because nobody knows. Nobody has the day, nobody has the hour. But what we're promised is abundant life now in Jesus. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and its power in the world, how it seems to it seems to create order out of chaos in my own heart. It seems to take broken things and put them together into something more beautiful than they were before. How it seems to give us confidence in the face of trial and temptation. How it seems to set us on the mission of living out of a different story. One where we're safe and secure, not terrified. One where we're open and transparent and vulnerable, not hiding behind fig leaves. One where we're free in conscience to live and to be honest with others not slaves to the fear of man. God, this is such wonderful news about how good you are. And every week I forget it. I bet my friends here at New City forget it too. Lord, we need you to remind us through your spirit. God, I pray that you would give us a burden like you gave Paul a burden in Romans chapter nine. He said, I wish that I was accursed and cut off from Christ if my countrymen, my kinsmen according to the flesh might know him. Lord, would you give us such a burden for people that don't know you where we could agree with Paul? 
then we might experience your power as we testify to the blood and the water through the Spirit. Give us strength, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.